Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's best science and technology news stories. I'm Timothy Revel in New York. And I'm Christy Taylor, also in New York. Welcome to the show. And welcome back, Tim, to the co-host seat. Thank you very much. Uh, Christy and I will be your hosts over the next nine months or so, whilst Rowan takes a little sabbatical. It's episode 202. Nice round number there. In the pod this week, we have new scientist reporters Alex Wilkins, Michael LePage, and Grace Wade. Hey, everyone. Hi. Hi. Hello. Coming up on the show, we've got, and this is really quite incredible, orangutans making noises like beatboxes, which we've got audio of. We've got a report straight from a major conference on the science of psychedelics. And we're upending the usual story of women in hunter-gatherer societies. (laughs) And to top it off, we've got a new law that could make AI hiring tools prove that they are not really racist or sexist. But first, we're going to start with what may be the heaviest story of the week. (laughs) I see what you did there. Yes, the astrophysics world is positively rippling with the news of new data about gravitational waves. All right. All right. Got it. So big (laughs) gravitational wave news this week. Astrophysicists, particularly on Twitter and TikTok, Mm -hmm. have been absolutely giddy with excitement about this new gravitational wave discovery. And it's one that's really 15 years in the making, but big news this week. So as a reminder, gravitational waves are the fast-moving disturbances in space-time, and they're caused when very massive objects collide. And they cause this sort of kind of stretching and squishing of space-time, but in a wave that moves. And the theory, it goes back to Einstein, but it was only a few years ago, back in 2015, that we first spotted them, when the LIGO Observatory detected ripples in space-time from two colliding black holes 1.3 billion light-years away. So that's pretty much the story up until this week. Alex, what is it that's new with gravitational waves that suddenly got everyone so excited? Yeah, so basically everyone's experience of gravitational waves is the LIGO Observatory and when they first detected these um, colliding black holes. But the black holes that they detected were pretty small on cosmic scales. They were of the order of 20 to 30 solar masses, which sounds big, but you can get supermassive black holes that are millions or billions the times the mass of our own sun. And there's been several teams around the world that have been listening out to see if we can get a hint of what these supermassive black holes might have produced in terms of gravitational waves. They are all listening out for the collisions of supermassive black holes. Now, the thing to understand about this is that 
supermassive black holes are very far away in the universe. If we were right next to one of them, we might be lucky enough to get a signal. But because they're all so far away, the signal that comes off them all sort of merge into one. And the other unique thing about the gravitational waves that they give off is that they operate in a very, very low frequency range. So the ones that we've measured before with LIGO, they sort of pass through the Earth in a matter of seconds. But these supermassive black hole gravitational waves will take of the order of years to pass through the Earth. And just for one wavelength to oscillate completely takes a light year in terms of distance. So you need a completely different setup You need these things called pulsar timing arrays, which I'm I'm sure we'll get into a bit later. But the easiest way to think about this is it's a bit like if you're in a pond and you throw one rock in, that's like the gravitational waves that you might see from smaller black holes. If you throw loads of rocks in from far away and you stand in the middle, they'll all sort of merge together and you'll get this background wave, background sort of noise that you might be able to detect. And you're talking about these shorter, faster waves from the LIGO detectors. but in, And now we're looking at what's much more long, slower waves from very large collisions. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. So just like with light and sort of light astronomy, you have this entire spectrum of wavelengths that you can detect. So if you're looking at a star from far away, you can detect the radio waves, you can detect the X-rays, you can detect the gamma rays. And they're all at different oscillations of light in exactly the same way. If something is heavy enough, or in fact, all objects produce a sort of gravitational wave at at different uh, amplitudes. But if you're heavy enough, then you will produce a gravitational wave. And depending on how large you are and how fast you're orbiting around something else, that will change how fast the gravitational wave is orbiting. So when the gravitational waves were first detected before, we needed this huge sensor. It was like a few kilometers long, these two different tubes, sort of arms that were used to detect the original gravitational waves. But these are a different sort of gravitational wave. Did it need a much bigger detector? Yeah, so the scale of the detector here is so large that you can't make it on Earth. You actually need something that is of the order of the distance across our galaxy. It just so happens that we have the perfect astrophysical object that we can use for the detectors. They are called pulsars, a dead star, a neutron star to be exact, that is highly magnetized and it is rotating at hundreds of times a second. And every time it rotates, it sends out a pulse of light. And the pulse of light that it sends out is so regular that it's as good as our best clocks. So we can rely on that timing without almost any sort of noise or or bumps in it. Now, if you have a network of these pulsars, think about clocks scattered throughout the galaxy, and we're measuring the time here on Earth. If we see any irregularities in that timing that are linked between all of those clocks, then we can work out what the sort of common cause is. And we think that if there's a background gravitational wave, then it will be affecting the timing in the exact same way across all of these clocks, and we might be able to measure it. So you're looking at the pulses of light from these dead stars and trying to see if they're off by tiny, tiny, tiny bits of time. That's incredible. And they found it. Yeah. And they didn't just find it. They they found it so confidently that they are putting it out with this um, confidence level, which they're saying if, if there wasn't a gravitational wave background, then the chances of finding this would be about one in a thousand. That's not the sort of gold standard in physics. They like to go for one in a million. But it's, it's so strong and there's so much sort of supporting evidence found by all the different groups across the world that they're pretty confident now in saying 
yet we think we found this gravitational wave background. The thing I find so amazing about all of this really is that throughout the history of astronomy, we've only looked at light. But here we're talking about potentially a completely different sort of astronomy altogether based around gravitational waves. Is this the new dawn of a new type of astronomy? What can these gravitational waves really tell us? I mean, I think it very potentially is like the start of a completely new era in gravitational astronomy. Being able to detect the gravitational waves from black holes, whether they're 20 times bigger than the sun, whether they're billions of times bigger than the sun, we'll be able to learn so much about the universe. Like supermassive black holes are intimately tied to the way that their host galaxy evolves. And that in turn sort of dictates how the universe evolves. So just being able to understand these enormous objects will really inform our understanding of the universe. But I mean, even in the next five, 10 years, there are more telescopes coming online that will be able to detect these pulsars more accurately. We have a hopefully a space interferometer going up called LISA in the 2030s, which will be able to detect intermediate sized black holes or the gravitational waves from them. And once all that's up and running, we'll just have a wealth of data being able to understand every massive object in the universe. That's, that's amazing. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all feel the same way about this. Now, I think it's probably fair to say that the popular view is that in hunter-gatherer societies, men did or do the hunting and women did or do the gathering. But it turns out that's not actually the case, as Michael, you reported on this week. Yeah, so there's been this growing evidence that women hunted in many cultures. For instance, in 2018, archaeologists in Peru found a grave of a person who was buried around 9,000 years ago with this really impressive toolkit, so there were spear tips and butcher's knives, the whole works. And in 2020, people took another look at this and they found that this individual was a woman. And so that team went, hey, is this an exception or are there others like this? And they took a look at nearly 30 similar burials in North and South America where individuals have been found with hunting gear. And actually, in nearly half of those cases, the individuals were women. Wow. So how representative is that? Does this suggest that half the hunters in those ancient societies were women? Yeah, well, that's certainly the, the possibility it suggests. But of course, we can't be entirely sure because these were people who buried thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. So now a team at the University of Washington says, well, we can't look back at the past and see for sure what's happening. But we can look at modern hunter-gatherer societies to see if women hunt in any of them. And in fact, there's this big database that's got more than 150 years worth of studies of more than a thousand societies around the world. And uh, by studies, I mean, these are papers who are written by anthropologists who actually went out and visited these societies and saw what people were doing. So anyway, this team looked at this database and they found 63 societies where there was information on hunting. And in 50 of them, women routinely went hunting. So that's nearly 80 percent. Wow. So so 80 percent of modern hunter gatherer societies have where there's information on hunting, have this sort of solid representation of women as hunters. So does this mean that women hunting in the past was also the norm rather than the exception? Yeah, well, I mean, the team think this is probably been this is probably the norm across the world at the present and and in the past in societies that are sort of pre-farming and relying on foraging or hunting and gathering. So yeah, this is the best evidence we have so far. It's pretty wild that we really thought Otherwise, it seems like that there was just this trove of evidence lying there, you know, in plain sight for decades. Yeah, I mean, actually, it's even more extraordinary than that, because, you know, some of these groups have changed their lifestyles, but others are still leading pretty much the same lifestyle, which means that there are still women hunting today in many parts of the world. And yet hardly anyone is aware of that. 
absolutely incredible. Are these women hunting in the same exact way as men, or do they have any adaptations of any kind? So according to these studies, there are some differences. For instance, a lot of women are catching smaller animals, but they also found in a third of the societies that recorded exactly what animals women were catching when they went hunting, they were hunting large animals as well. They also found that women tend to use a much wider variety of approaches in terms of what weapons they use and who they go hunting with and, and so on. Do we know why that is? Well, the thinking is it's because women are going hunting, for instance, when they are pregnant, they might have a child in their back, they might have children with them. So they've got to be flexible and adapt their strategy if they can't move around as freely as normal. And then, of course, in some cases, there are also taboos which say, oh, you can't use that weapon or you can't use that tool, which is it's rather strange to us. But that is apparently the case in, in many of these societies. Time to take a short break to tell you about this year's New Scientist Live. That's our annual celebration of science and the joy of discovery. And this is an event for anyone, no matter what continent you're on. You can join us in person at the Excel Center in London or see all the talks online as we bring you the best loved names in science and technology. With more than 50 speakers across four stages, this event has everything covered. We've got deep oceans, distant galaxies, mental health, meteorites. So if you're curious about life, the universe and our place in it, then New Scientist Live is for you. You can get more information and book your tickets now on the New Scientist website. And we'll link to that in the show notes. Plus, our special early bird ticket price is live for just a few more days. Get those before Sunday, July 2nd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That sound means it's time to celebrate our life form of the week. Christy, is this the elusive life form known as a beatboxer? That is absolutely correct. That is Marcus Lerng, a student at the University of Warwick. And beatboxing is a very advanced vocal feat, as you probably have heard. It involves making two sounds, often a consonant and a vowel at the same time with your one face. <laughs> but beatboxing humans are not our life form of the week. Instead, it is this. <laughs> Part of me wants to say hippopotamus. <laughs> uh, another bit saying, is it an ape? It is an ape, a great ape, an orangutan, making a sound called a kiss squeak, to be precise. And we're talking about them because of new research out from the University of Warwick this week. Adriano Lamira and his team have spent thousands of hours following and recording orangutans to try to sample the sounds they make. And some of them 
like that kiss squeak we just heard, are also like beatboxing, this very complicated combination of vowel and consonant sounds. Here's Lamira talking about what it takes to actually do this if you are either an orangutan or a human. So the kiss squeak in orangutans, it's exactly the same as a kiss sound in humans. So they just they just suck air through their protruded lips, but then you, you have to add then the voice at the same time. So it'll be something like... Mm. So consonant-like sounds tend to come from the mouth, from the movement of the lips and the tongue and the jaw and airflow in the mouth, just like the sounds... As opposite to vowel-like sounds that come from our larynx, that come from our vocal folds. So if I say, ah my vocal folds are vibrating. And of course, if I say, ah, it's very inherently difficult for me to do other sounds with my mouth because my mouth is opened. And so if you want to be producing, using these two sound sources at the same time, you got to find a good alignment between what's happening in both sources so that both can be active together. And as he also says, this alignment of those two abilities or shapes is very rare in human languages. It's mostly, he says, a feature of beatboxing. Whoa. So it's rare in human languages and orangutans, they just do it effortlessly. What what does that really say about language in our primate cousins? Well, one thing it says is that the ability to make multiple sounds at the same time may be deeply conserved. And that's something that our long ago ancestors could do that has stayed in the family, as it were. Lamira also thinks it says something about the capacity of great apes for the kinds of complicated vocal feats that led to us being able to speak into microphones and make a podcast about vocal feats. Like maybe the complexity we needed isn't new to us, but is something that was there all along. The takeaway message here is we've highly undervalued and underestimated the capacity of great apes of doing something that is that really reaches our own limit of you know, vocal production. And so they are doing, not only they are doing consonant-like and vowel-like calls, which by itself is already a a close parallel to any spoken language, but they are actually taking that a step beyond and doing something that only someone who has put an invested effort in developing their vocal aptitude, just like beatboxers, can actually achieve. It's, It's very difficult. I can't really beatbox, certainly not willingly on this podcast. Oh, come on. But I, I reckon I can probably do a kiss squeak, given enough practice. Mm-hmm. But neither of them really feel like a precursor for my ability to speak and communicate. I mean, do we know that they are in some way linked? Well, I can't beatbox either at all. And I have a great deal of respect for those who do. But Lamira did also note that just because a lot of us haven't developed the skill doesn't mean we can't. It's just latent. And maybe more intriguingly, he thinks that there's a chance to re-envision human uniqueness when it comes to even the concept of language down the road. This has happened in, in the history of science. So, you know, less than a century ago, we thought that humans were the only tool producing animal. And we are quite vexed to see today books with hundreds of entries about tool use across animals, insects, octopus, fish use tools. And so, you know, less than a century ago, we thought we were the only one. And then it was culture. We thought that we were the only cultural animal. Now we know that migrating animals have traditions and even drosophila, fruit flies, have mating traditions. And so I think this is kind of the new frontier. Language is still a little bit in our pedestal of uniqueness, but I think we're starting to chip away that pedestal and kind of try to show that there's a continuum 
between what apes do vocally and what we do verbally. I love stories like this. It really mm-hmm. just seems the more we learn about the animal kingdom, we realize how amazing it is, just how ununique we are mm-hmm. in it. And it sounds like what he's talking about there is that maybe language isn't an either or case, that it's this continuum of language. Right. And I, I definitely love to find out that something else isn't a binary. So Lamira does think that because it's so difficult to record apes in the wild, especially critically endangered ones like orangutans, and because we can't do the kind of brain research on them that has been done in you know, another famous language case study, Songbirds, this field of investigating the language capacity or continuum of apes and other animals may be a field that continues to move somewhat slowly. Next up, we wanted to take a minute to check in with our health reporter, Grace Wade, who uh, you're just back from a reporting field trip to a major conference on the science of psychedelics in Denver, Colorado. So, Grace, could you maybe set the scene for us? Who was there and what were the things that everyone was excited about? Right. So this was actually the largest psychedelic conference in history. More than 13,000 people were in attendance uh, last time I checked with their PR team. Um, And it was hosted by a nonprofit organization called MAPS. That stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And there was a whole range of people there. You know, you had some of the best researchers in the field, as well as healthcare providers, drug policy analysts, and they were all kind of there to discuss the latest clinical trials, therapeutic applications of these drugs, as well as discussing the potential regulatory landscape if these drugs do get approved in the future. You know, Grace, it really does feel like we're seeing more and more research into psychedelics, and then that is leading to interesting data. What were some of the projects that you were able to hear about? Right. So my personal favorite uh, project that I heard about and the one I found the most interesting was the latest research from Roland Griffiths at Johns Hopkins University. He and his colleagues uh, gave two doses of psilocybin, that's the psychoactive compound in shrooms or magical mushrooms, to 29 religious leaders from a variety of religious backgrounds. The majority were from Christian denominations, but they also included a Zen Buddhist leader, two rabbis, and a Muslim imam. So there was still a bit of, you know, diversity there. And they were looking to see, you know, how these religious leaders who are so deep in theology will respond to psychedelics, which have previously been shown to induce mystical experiences in people. And what they found was that these drugs brought these leaders closer to God or the divine. It reinvigorated the practice of their faith. And interestingly, it made them more receptive to other religions. So I'm going to read one of the quotes that was mentioned at the conference from one of the rabbis who participated in the study. He said, the experience has deepened and opened my appreciation of other religions as well as my own. I realized they each had this incredible truth, and all the truths are in all religions to some degree. But some of them just highlight one facet more than the other. The active ingredients are all the same. Pretty exciting. It seems like this really goes back to lots of that research we know from like the 60s and the summer of love that maybe mushrooms and other psychedelics can sort of open your mind to different experiences and ideas. But it seems like now a lot of the movement is that there's potential uses for them with mental health and also things like treating things like depression and PTSD. Was there talk about that at the conference? Yeah, so that's definitely where most of the research on psychedelics has centered for the past few decades. And a lot of that research is in phase three clinical trials or phase three clinical trials have wrapped up. But another thing I found really interesting while at this conference was that 
researchers are looking to use these drugs for other conditions, not just PTSD, depression, anxiety, and things like that, but even some of our trickiest-to-treat conditions. So one of the sessions was about using psilocybin to treat anorexia, which is one of the deadliest mental health conditions. It's an eating disorder. And they gave, it was two separate trials, uh, and this is all preliminary data, so the trials still haven't wrapped up yet, but they gave participants multiple doses of psilocybin along with uh, therapy, and they found that it improved uh, measures of eating disorder severity. So they were less concerned about their weight, they felt more confident, and they also were less restrained with how they lived their life, both in terms of their eating disorder rituals, but also, you know, anxiety, depression, other comorbidities and things like that. Yeah, so we should say that like, uh, so much of these studies at the moment are really early stages. It's really like potential hints of what the drugs may do. But are we any closer to understanding how psychedelics uh, have the effects that they do? Part of me wants to say no, not at all. <laughs> but we are getting closer. So, you know, people used to think that the reason psychedelics exerted these therapeutic effects was uh, because they had the ability to induce neuroplasticity in the brain. So that means that the brain is essentially more malleable to form new connections and get rid of old ones, uh, potentially helping people overcome, you know, negative thought patterns. But research has shown that's not that can't be the full story because actually other drugs like cocaine can also induce neuroplasticity, but we don't see <laughs> we don't see therapeutic uh, effects from those. So interestingly, uh, Gold Dolan at Johns Hopkins University also presented data at the conference with a new theory, which is that psychedelic drugs can reopen critical learning periods of the in the brain. So these are important windows of development in the brain that only happen for a certain period of time. You know, the prime example I think is. If a child isn't exposed to language by their first birthday, they'll never fully grasp sentence structure. So what Dolan and her colleagues did is they gave a whole range of psychedelic drugs to mice. So that included psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, which is the active compound in molly or ecstasy, as well as ketamine, which is a disassociative. And what they found was that all of these drugs were able to reopen a critical period for social learning in these animals, which suggests that maybe the reason we're seeing therapeutic benefits from these drugs is that it brings our brain back to almost like a childlike state where we can relearn things that we've lost the ability to learn. How is it going to go from promising research to actual treatments? Right. So that was uh, another big theme at the conference, you know, one of the biggest hurdles is we're going to need a lot of therapists to be trained in how to use these drugs because they're unlike any other drugs on the market today. They're very powerful. They can make people very vulnerable to, you know, what's happening inside of them. But we're still a long way off from that. You know, as Tim mentioned earlier, these studies are really small. They're really preliminary. And part of the reason is because in the United States, psychedelics are Schedule One drugs, which makes it really hard for researchers to obtain them in studies. So because of that, we still have a long way to go uh, in terms of gathering more data and larger sample sizes with control groups before these even become commonplace. All right, you'll be able to read much more from Grace from the MAPS conference on newscientist.com in the coming weeks. Thanks, Grace. Thank you. Tim, up next, we have a story about a new law that applies only in New York City, but it could have ramifications across the world. Is that right? Correct. So our technology reporter in New York, Jeremy Sue, he's been looking into a new local New York City law about using artificial intelligence to sort job applicants. 
So when recruiting for a job, there are a lot of tools companies might use to help them wade through the applications. Mm -hmm. And it's now becoming pretty common that they might use some sort of AI sorting tool to help pick out the people that the AI at least thinks are most suitable for the role. And one part of the new law is that now when AI is being used in New York, companies will have to tell you that that was part of the process, which I think will certainly be nice to know. Mm -hmm. But a more interesting part, at least for me conceptually on this, is that the law is going to require that these AI tools are audited for bias. So in other words, companies are going to have to check if their recruitment algorithms are racist, sexist or ageist or have other sorts of biases in them. You know, Tim, we've talked about AI so much in the past six months in the magazine and on the podcast. I imagine as it gets better and better, it's going to become quite common for employers to use. Yeah, the, the current estimate is about 99% of Fortune 500 companies use some kind of AI tool in their recruitment process. Wow. Yeah, so it, it's really widespread at this point. And these algorithms, they certainly speed up the process, but there's also this ongoing concern that they really bake bias into the process. So if your AI is trained on a not very diverse workforce in the first place, then maybe it thinks the most suitable candidates for your workplace are also not very diverse. Yeah, there's kind of this famous example from 2018. Uh, Amazon, the tech slash delivery company, they discovered their hiring algorithm was discriminating against women because the data that it was trained on was 10 years of resumes, mostly from men. Yeah, it, exactly. So if only men have applied to your company in the past or have jobs at your company, then your data is going to reflect that. And your algorithm then thinks that the best person for your role at your company is also a man, which is, of course, not true. Love reinforcing those historic injustices. <laughs> So Amazon just dropped that hiring tool voluntarily, and this law in New York City is the first of its kind to really tackle regulating algorithms in the hiring process, though the federal government is also looking into the problem as well. Is this likely to be a model for more laws like this New York City law? Yeah. Uh, I mean, people are certainly looking at it to see what it means in practice and how effective it is, what the outcomes will be. But there are many people who are really skeptical about this New York City law. Mm. It comes actually into effect next week, but it's very narrowly written. So it means that you must audit your tools. You must post the results of that audit on your website and you must notify job applicants that you're using AI. But that's it. Also, there's this additional part of the narrowness of it that means that it only applies to companies where the AI recommendation takes precedence over any human decision making, which isn't that many companies. Mm -hmm. And there's some criticism as well that often, you know, as happens with uh, legislation, that the technology companies who make these AI tools have just had too much to say in how the law was written. Yeah, that's never happened before. <laughs> uh, still, it's probably a good sign that we're starting to see action to regulate the ways algorithms may affect people, right? That notification bit uh, sounds to me like it could at least allow people to take some kind of action, at least if they worry they're being discriminated against. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely gives that power. And as you said, the US government is looking seriously at the implication of algorithmic hiring tools more broadly. Individual states will probably also pass some of their own laws. And in the European Union, the AI Act, which is a big piece of legislation in the works, covers many different areas. They're also looking to set some pretty tough standards for avoiding discrimination in hiring algorithms as well. So all in all, it might be fair to call this progress. <laughs> well, that's, that's something. Yeah, progress. Progress. That's all for this week. 
Before we go, you might have noticed it's a Friday, not a Thursday, when this pod usually comes out. That's on purpose. Moving forward, we're changing our schedule. We will be here in your feed every Friday. Thank you very much for listening. And do subscribe to our show on whatever app you're listening on. And thanks for your support. Bye for now. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.